This month, my co-producer, Chad Snavely, and I are going to try something different with this show. We're going to basically do what I call the on-being model. On-being is one of my favorite podcasts. If you don't listen to it, you should check it out. But basically, every episode will have two versions. There will be an edited version that is around 45 to 50 minutes long. We'll include cutting some material, uh, synthesizing and shortening some stuff, and musical breaks, and all of that good stuff. And then there will be an unedited, completely unedited, full-length conversation of me with the guest for people who want to dive deeper. When I listen to On Being, I sort of look at the guest and I choose how interested I am in the topic. And then I decide to listen to the whole thing, get a bigger, better sense of the guest and what they're doing. Or if I'm like, you know, 50 minutes on this is plenty for me. I'm just going to listen to the regular produced segment. Then I'll listen to that. I think that what this new format will do is make it easier to share this show with people. So if people are not already invested in the show, maybe they'll listen to 45 minutes of something, but not an hour and 20 minutes. And this might be an easier way to spread the word, as well as give listeners an option. This will, of course, cost more in terms of production. It will be more time for Chad. So I will foot that expense for the time being. But if you'd like to help, we do have a Patreon going. Um patreon.com slash depolarize or depolarizepodcast.com click become a patron but I thank the current patrons so 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 much for making this possible this little experiment so we're going to do it for the month of May see how it goes please let me know email me depolarizepodcast at gmail.com post in the Facebook discussion group for the depolarized podcast tell me if you like this if it's worth it or if you prefer to go back to just the longer episodes that are lightly edited for spaces and ums and stuff like that. Today's guest, David Lapp, works with Better Angels, the current main focus of the think tank Institute for American Values. As you'll hear, David and the Better Angels team have been facilitating these in-person weekend-long gatherings of people from Red America and Blue America, and implementing a structure that aims to walk through our current polarized political conflict into something better, something more respectful and more understanding. It's a really interesting thing that they've been doing, and we spend at least half the time just kind of like putting ourselves in the room with these people. But before we do that, a little announcement. A lot of you know that Reconstruct launched this past week. It did. It's my other podcast. It's about theology, deconstruction and reconstruction, hot topics, controversial issues, all of the drama of a People magazine issue, except on an eternal scale. (laughs) The first episode, we told our stories of deconstruction and reconstruction, and we got into a little bit of Jacques Derrida and what deconstruction is and why it is inextricably linked to reconstruction. Episode two went up Tuesday. It was with Peter Enns. He's a biblical scholar, mostly Old Testament, and he writes a lot about inerrancy of scripture, certainty and faith and doubt. This week, John and I tackled the question, what must one believe to be saved? And the fun thing is we don't agree on that. We interview each other and we each answer that question and we come to really different answers. And that's sort of part of the show. It's part of what we love to do about it. So if you're interested in that, go check it out. Reconstruct. You can search for it in your podcast's app. 
or go to reconstructpodcast.com. And now here's David for some group depolarization. So David, before we talk about Better Angels, which is sort of the focus of our conversation, let's get some background on you personally. What is your experience in politics and in psychology? What led you to work with Better Angels? I studied in, at a small Christian college in New York City called the King's College. It was in the Empire State Building at the time that I attended. And um, I studied politics, philosophy, and economics there. And during my time there, I learned of the Institute for American Values, a, a think tank run by David Blankenhorn in New York City. So I began working for them after graduation. And the Institute for American Values, uh, Better Angels, is the flagship initiative of the Institute for American Values. And so um, my entry into the work of, of Better Angels and kind of depolarization came through working with David Blankenhorn, uh, who founded Better Angels. And at the time in 2009, when I started working with David, we were focused on issues of family structure and uh, research into marriage and family issues. And the focus on polarization and depolarization, that has only happened within about the last two years. But in 2010, when I was working with David, David asked me one day, he said, do you know anyone that would like to go to the Midwest and talk to young thinking about marriage? So I went home to my wife that evening and, and she said, well, you know, we would like to do that. My wife is originally from the Midwest. And the idea was to talk to mostly working class young people, but also some college educated young people about their stories of forming families and how they were thinking about marriage. And the setting for this was a, uh, a ta- was, was, was a setting in southwestern Ohio, kind of a town divided by class. On the hill, you have you know, mostly kind of affluent college educated folks. And in the valley, you have you know, working class people. And there's kind of a divide between the two. And so my entry into the Better Angels depolarization work has really been in thinking about how we as a country are divided by class and the growing class divisions in our country. And which you saw because you were interviewing people about their marriages, but that led you to this divide. Yes. Uh, so we spent uh, a couple months in this Ohio town in southwestern Ohio interviewing young people. And, you know, the, the, the setting is this town kind of divided by class. And one thing led to another. And we, you know, this this couple month research stint became spanned several years. And now my wife and I, we moved to Ohio and um, have continued to think about the ways in which we are divided socioeconomically how that plays out in our churches, in our politics, on many of the of the problems our society faces today. We need all of us to reunite, to come together, and to ha- experience solidarity again. And so, those that's kind of the way that I got into Better Angels. Okay, so let's just um, before we start dispensing our. Uh end of the episode wisdom for how to <laughs> how to solve America's polarization <laughs> let's let's zoom out a bit so okay 
David Blankenthorn is a guy who started a think tank called American Values. Institute for American Values. Okay. Institute for American Values. You started working with them in 2009, and you were starting your work on family questions, basically strengthening families and family bonds, divorce, and, and all that stuff, right? That's right. Okay. So then that took you to Ohio. You you were in this town sharply divided by class. So you were thinking of marriage and family relations in terms of class. And then what made you and or David interested in this issue of polarization a year and a half, two years ago? Yeah, well, um, one thing that happened is my colleague, David Blankenhorn, um, he – found himself experiencing personally experiencing polarization because of the work on on marriage. So he David Blankenhorn, he wrote a book called The Future of Marriage in the mid 2000s um arguing for uh, a traditional understanding of marriage and then he was a witness in the Prop 8 trial in defense of traditional understanding of marriage as opposed to uh, an understanding of marriage that would include uh homosexual marriage. Exactly. Okay. So of course, as a, as as a result of David taking that stance, he was on the receiving end of a lot of not just disagreement and respectful disagreement, but a lot of personal vitriol directed against him for taking that stand. And then uh, fast forward a couple of years to 2012, and he uh, wrote an op-ed in the New York Times. And after having thought about it more and having relationships with people that uh, including Jonathan Rauch, who's the author of Gay Marriage and is a member of the Better Angels Board now. David changed his mind on the gay marriage issue and wrote about it in the New York Times. Man, that is good because otherwise I was going to have to just hang up on you, end this conversation, <laughs> and never air the episode. I'm kidding. Well, no, I'm kidding. Yeah, so what happened after David wrote that op ed is he was again on the receiving end of a lot of. You know, a lot of polarization. Yeah, he time, basically made he made everyone mad in the whole country in just a few right. years. Yeah, right. Exactly. I think that experience made a big impact on him, and I is is part of what I think got the Institute for American Values and David thinking about polarization more generally. As with the gay marriage issue, and you could include other issues on this. People are complicated, and people have very complicated reasons for sometimes for you know believing what they believe, having the positions that they ha- have. And so, if you, for instance, talk about the 2016 election, you know, Trump voters and Clinton voters. I mean, for instance, among Trump voters, you had uh, you have everyone from you know conservative, educated, you know, for instance, Catholics who you know, I know evangelical Christians who supported Trump because of their concern for. You know, appointing a conservative Supreme Court justice to, you know, white working class people who may be kind of maybe not attending a religious congregation, but kind of Christian in culture, but who are, you know, very concerned about immigration and very, right. uh, for them, the issue is building a wall. Yeah. The thing we always say on this show is the only thing you can say about all Trump voters is that they voted for Trump. Exactly. Right. And even and within- of course, same with Hillary. Yeah, even with an individual person, there may be very complicated reasons for right. doing it. So what we with Better Angels, what we think is that we ought to strive for those things that we have in common. We ought to strive to find those things that we hold in common. 
and try to um, appeal to our better angels. Before we get into some more details about what goes on at these meetings, give us like a headline of what you've learned through working with better angels thus far, like some bullet points. One of the things that I've noticed is with the, the two gatherings that we've had, and they've been weekend gatherings, is that no matter how polarized a person is coming into the gathering, the, the person-to-person interaction, it just changes the dynamic. And yes, that there is this kind of natural inclination that we have as humans to uh, inflame our differences and to, you know, resort to name calling and so forth and, 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 you know, make these sharp lines of good and bad. You're good. I'm good. You're bad. And yes, that's all very natural. And, you know, we, we easily fall into doing that. But also when we meet each other in person, in a group and have a person to person conversation, there is also, it seems with most people, a, a kind of a, a desire to get along. It's very hard to kind of to maintain this, this posture of, of you're really bad and I'm right, you know, when you actually meet the person and you get to know them for a little bit. And that's what has happened in these gatherings is beginning of relationships happen. And as a result, we find that, oh, you know, maybe you're not as bad as I thought. And maybe I should be less categorical and and do less stereotyping of the other side. So really, the the power of person-to-person conversation is something that I've seen and noticed, is we really do have this kind of desire to get along. Yeah. So just give us some snippets, like vignettes or memories you have from these actual events. Like what kind of things were said or whatever? Our latest gathering was two weekends ago, April 21st to the 23rd, and we had eight uh, folks from Blue America and seven from Red America. And one of the remarkable things that happened was one of the gentlemen on, on the in the Red America group, he's very pro-Trump, very vocally pro-Trump. He's, uh, would, he would consider himself a part of the Tea Party movement. And uh, he was sitting next to um, someone from the Blue America side who uh, is an Iranian-American immigrant. And they kind of, you know, in their one-on-one conversation throughout the weekend, they agreed to do this thing. And that is um, the Tea Party pro-Trump guy, he is going to uh, visit a mosque with the Iranian-American immigrant. And the Iranian-American immigrant is going to visit you know, the Trump guy's uh, Pentecostal Christian church. Not as a way of trying to convert each other or change each other, but as a way of trying to better understand the other person's world. So that's just one thing that's happened. Another thing that I saw was during our first gathering uh, where we had 11 Clinton voters and 10 Trump voters – one of the um, African-Americans who was present at the gathering, she was talking about Black Lives Matter. And one of the Trump voters, you know, was like, I don't, I don't know about this Black Lives Matter thing. You know, don't all lives matter? And, and they had some 
you know, they, they, they were not afraid to ask each other about how they thought about this. And they had a kind of a very candid and honest um, but direct conversation. But it struck me their willingness to be both direct and civil when talking to each other. And, you know, I think they would say that they achieved a little bit better understanding of where each other is coming from. What do you chalk that up to? Why were they able, you know, obviously if those two people we would assume were on a Facebook thread, (laughs) comment thread, we would not imagine it going that way. So why is this just what you were saying in person makes, you know, a whole world of difference or is there more? Yeah, there is more. And I think part of this, um, obviously, it takes the, the setup and the design of the of the gathering matters a lot, too. Yeah, there's a, well, and there's a little bit of self-selection if people agree to come to such an event. Yes, there is. And in fact, before our first gathering, there were a couple of people from each side who said, oh, you don't want me for this, you know, for this gathering. I would not... I would not be able to contain my anger at the other side, uh, you know, for a whole weekend. So I'm not going to be able to come to this. But then again, we did have some people who were very polarized as well, who said, you know, well, you know, basically the other side doesn't use logic. And so I can't I can't do this. Uh, But they still can't. It'll be literally impossible for me. They thought it would be impossible for them to do it because only their side is logical. Yes, exactly. And but one of those people that told me that did come and uh, was I mean, he he was a wonderful participant in the gathering and wants to continue meeting. And um, so, yeah, it's not just the case. Yeah, some of it may be selection, but we have had some, you know, some pretty polarized opinions coming into uh, these conversations. But so with the design uh, of the meeting and the facilitation, what we do is so when in the weekend gathering, we start out with an exercise in which the two groups go, go into their own groups and they ask themselves, what are the stereotypes that the other side has about us that we believe are inaccurate or exaggerated? That's awesome. So if the Trump voters are are, um, yeah, here you you do Trump voters and I'll do Hillary voters. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so the Trump I was with Trump voters, and they said, well, you know, they think that we're uneducated rednecks who you know just are just are just thoughtless sheep. So if if I'm doing Hillary, I would say uh, they think that we are a bunch of lazy millennials who need safe spaces and want to get everything handed to us for free. Yeah, that exactly that that Boom. that came up. <laughs> okay, yes, what, what that did came I miss? Up. What else is there? The Trump voters said of course that, you know, they they say that we're racist and xenophobic and anti-women. Uh, the Clinton voters uh, uh those in blue America said that, you know, well they they think that we're unpatriotic and and godless and uh you know, we don't care about America and we just want open borders and 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 yes, and the one about you know that we just want to basically give away the farm, and that we're just lazy people who, you know, just want to spend, 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 and um, all we care about is big government. Man, you know, even just hearing you summarize those perceptions of groups about their own stereotypes gives me hope. Just hearing it said out loud is like, oh, I feel like a lot of the times we go through our lives. We have political conversations, we read articles, we share things. 
in the assumption that we see the other side clearly, but they don't, they don't know what we think of them. They don't even know what's going on in the world. They're kind of, they're kind of ass backwards or whatever. And then when you ask them how they think they're perceived and, and then you go, Oh yeah, I, I do tend to think of you that way in my worst moments. And you're, you know, like you're like, Oh, they pick up on this. Uh, they're not a bunch of idiots. They're aware of what I'm calling them and they just disagree with me. Yeah. And moreover, one of the most powerful moments uh, in this last gathering that we had was when the Trump voters said, and they said, and yes, they said, we acknowledge that regrettably some Trump voters are racist and really are xenophobic. And, and that's bad and and we we can't have it that way and we condemn those people and that just just them saying that was like it just gave the you know those in the blue side just wow like some space to breathe you know they're like wow thank you for saying that another thing that that uh one of the trump voters said is he said you know i do think that president obama was treated unfairly by republicans and that also was like oh Thank you. Like, oh my goodness. Wow. Okay, let's get a couple examples of things that blue staters said that made the Trump voters uh, breathe more easily. You know, one of the things that came out of the – somebody said after the end of our first gathering, you know, he said, I came in here thinking that maybe they don't love – they probably don't love this country because of who they voted for and, you know, the, what they stand for. And by the end of it, he said, okay, he said, I can see that – that they do love this country, that they are patriotic. And I'm not exactly sure what it was that, that the Clinton voters had said that made him say that, but it was this kind of change from, you know, they're not patriotic to, okay, they do love our country. They just, on a lot of things, they have a different solution or a different way of getting to uh, the goal, you know, the, the, the good thing that we're all striving yeah. for. We just have different ways of getting there. So I have a couple things that I try and because I'm I'm a person on the left. I am I'm definitely coming from blue America on most issues. And uh, I have a couple things that I I'd like to lead with or, you know, depending on the the conversation, you know, I I try and admit to what might be an executive overreach of power by Obama or at the very least I will admit that I don't like that Trump can do as much as Trump can do and that I, I know that Obama also, you know, used executive power. I don't think he like did as many orders as Bush or whatever, but it was like he did as much as he could do with the executive branch. And some people saw that as an overreach and some people are now seeing what Trump's doing as an overreach in a similar way or talk about drone strikes and sort of the ethical ambiguity of that. I don't know. I guess there's, there's a bunch more just, or, you know, like you can go simple as so simple as like, yeah, Democrats tend to push for as many services as possible and tend not to be the ones pushing for, you know, just cleaning those systems up and making them as efficient mm. as they could mm -hmm. be or something like that. Yeah. 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 One of, one of the things that that was mentioned by some of the Democrats was, I think this person was a uh, medical doctor. She said, let's be honest, Obamacare, uh, the Affordable Care Act, that could use some revisions. It's not perfect. We need to do a lot of work on that. They also said, you know, Hillary Clinton, you know, she wasn't the perfect candidate and, you know, she could have 
have been more straightforward when communicating. And uh, and so that also, that's just uh, Republicans are like, oh, thank you. You know, wow, okay. You know, so, finally a Democrat with some sense, you know. <laughs> David told me about a lot of different activities that they engage in at these events. And you can listen to the full unedited version to hear more of those stories. But one of them in particular stood out to me. And then we also have an exercise where we invite people to ask questions of those on the other side, and then we divide into small groups of mixed. So we have those in red and blue America in these in these mixed small groups. So let, you know, one of the questions that was asked, for instance, was uh, one of the uh, Clinton voters asked the Trump voter, "How do you know when Trump means what he says, and when is he just speaking?" You know, metaphorically. Yeah, that's a good question. One of the Republicans asked, "What did you make of of um, Hillary Clinton's emails?" But then also some common ground emerges during this time because one of the questions that was asked during this last time was, "What do you think of paid parental leave?" And a woman on the red side, a young mother of four, she had to go back to work one time after a couple of days in order to try to pay the bills. And this is one of her most important issues, she'll tell you, is, is, is paid family leave. And she voted for Trump, right? And it's just, this is a really important issue for her. And so she talked about that. And then one of, the, and one of the other Republicans listening to this young mother you know, telling her story, I don't know how much he had thought about paid parental leave before or not, but he said, just listening to that, he said, you know, my heart went out to her and I felt her pain. And I said, yeah, we should do this. We need to do this. And, you know, so maybe even even within, you know, the groups. Wow. There's something really interesting about that. You know, Jonathan Haidt, the, um, or Haidt, rather, the social psychologist talks about how you want to, you want to talk to someone in their own language, like from their own perspective. If you disagree with them and you're trying to convince them of a particular policy or whatever, and there's something maybe even further here. You have someone of your own tribe who is expressing a need contrary to what is the normally expressed view of the tribe. Then the person in there is goes, oh, like they can kind of hear it. They can hear it more clearly when it comes from someone that they feel safe engaging with maybe. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think that's, that's a powerful point. You, we also saw this. In the exercise about stereotypes, for instance, some of those in the, on the red side were, you know, arguably stereotyping the other side in the conversation. And one of the red participants said, wait a minute, aren't you stereotyping the other side? Aren't you doing what we're trying not to do here? And that was really kind of a, an important turning point. Like a, it was a self-policing within It was the group. a self-policing, exactly. And it it kind of set the tone for uh, one of humility and kind of self-criticism and self-examination, which, you know, then, then, then those on the blue side were like, they were impressed by that. They're like, wow, you guys were, you know, you guys were like self-critical and we didn't expect that. And so, yes, it's the, the self-policing from within your own tribe, that is really, really important and powerful. And it was something that Many participants in our two Ohio gatherings so far have mentioned as something that they want to do better at is to, you know, if someone says, oh, you know, those, 
you know, those, all those Trump voters, they're just, you know, they're all crazy. And, you know, I wouldn't want to be friends with them, blah, 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 is they, you know, they said, well, actually, wait a minute, you know, they're, I mean, yes, you can disagree with the policies and have strong opinions about that. But I met this person and, you know, he, he was, he was pretty cool or she was pretty great. Well, man, you know, I think that the self-policing, that's also something that David Frum recommends a lot is, is critiquing your own side. And I've been doing it in my personal life, and uh, I have a pretty high tolerance for controversy, (laughs) as evidenced by the fact that I started this podcast. But um, it's hard, man. I mean, I've had some friendships strained, and some of that is my own fault for just kind of doing it in a, a little bit of a dickish way, not on purpose, but, you know... In this moment, people are not used to self-policing of their own tribe. We, I think we are at like peak group confirmation bias right now. I mean, maybe it could get worse, but like peak, we're at peak tribal identity, at least for the last 15, 20 years. And Trump has kind of probably brought that into like a, you know, crystallizing or whatever. But it's hard to self-police. I mean, I, I will keep doing it and I encourage our listeners to to do it, but to know going in that you're going to ruffle some feathers. I don't know. It's not going to be easy. Like, have you seen people try and do this or have people reported back with sort of what they've experienced in trying to, to self-police on their own side? I haven't heard those reports back yet, although I'm sure we will, but yeah, I mean, you're right. It is. I've, I've also heard Jonathan Haidt say that personally, he's tried to get in the habit of conversations with people who would be on the other side of him. And, you know, he said, you know, he said, one of the things that when I do that is, you know, I I tend to make a lot of mistakes, but I also have just gotten good at asking, you know, saying sorry to people, you know, when when you do mess up. So I think that's just another really important aspect of depolarization is, is forgiveness and asking for forgiveness, giving uh, forgiveness and just saying, I'm sorry, you know, I, 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 I didn't say that right, or I made a mistake, or I shouldn't have said that. I mean, that was another one of the really powerful things that happened in our last gathering was one of the people on the red side had used a term about an African-American that in describing the African-American that he didn't know was, was not acceptable language. And at the end, this person publicly asked for forgiveness from um, the African-American participant in tears, ask for forgiveness. And I mean, just tell you, I mean, there were, there were a lot of tears, you know, at that point in the group, because then when we ask for forgiveness and we recognize when we've said something wrong or said, done something wrong, it just changes the logic of the thing, you know, from tit for tat, you hit me, I'm going to hit you. It's an opportunity to go to another level, to start a new process, to start something different and surprising. And I think forgiveness enables and allows that to happen. Moving on, because you're, you've been involved in more than just these meetings, I don't want to spend the whole time talking about the meetings. One of the things on the Better Angels website that really caught my eye is bringing together this group of people to talk about religious liberty and LGBTQ rights. 
two things which are generally seen to be sort of in a zero-sum game of competition with each other. What is this? Just tell us a little bit about this project. Yeah, so that was – we've had two gatherings, LGBTQ leaders and people concerned about religious liberty. We've had two gatherings, and we haven't issued a statement or um, anything like that, a public statement, and I, I don't believe we have any plans to at the moment. But mostly what has happened is – human relationships and you know again just i mean the same thing that we've been doing with the with these dialogues with red america and blue america is you know trying to better understand experiences and views of the other and try to you know understanding the stories of the other and and i think one of the breakthroughs with the religious liberty lgbtq rights with these gatherings is after these meetings, there's kind of been the the recognition, I think, or greater recognition on both sides that, okay, you know, so people who say that they are concerned about religious liberty, they really are concerned about religious liberty, many of them. Um, they're not just trying to, you know, bash gay people. And then again, and then for the, you know, religious liberty folks that, oh, wow, like, you know, they really, you know, the, the folks on the LGBTQ side, they really are, they really do have you know, experiences of, of discrimination and and real concerns that I just hadn't thought of before, you know. And so th- th- I just think there, there's been, um, you know, there's been goodwill generated from those conversations. And this is, you know, people, leaders from, you know, important groups in America. Again, we haven't done any, released anything public, but conversations that have been going, uh, happening on the side uh, that have been, uh, hopefully will, you know, have an effect on our public conversation. Is your sense that that issue is actually kind of a zero sum type of a thing? What I mean by that is, is there a policy solution that both protects the type of religious freedom that the religious freedom folks want protected and also grants all or some of the rights and privileges that the LGBTQ activist crowd wants, or is it really just going to end up being some sort of push and pull compromise that just, you know, democracy will work out? Yeah. One of the participants in these conversations has been someone who was intimately involved in what's known as the Utah compromise in Utah a couple years ago. The LDS Church, they agreed to, uh, you know, of course, many politically engaged people in Utah are members of the LDS Church, and so the LDS Church, um, they they came out in in favor of this uh, compromise, in w- and it's called now called the Utah Compromise, in which discrimination towards LGBTQ folks in housing and employment, you know, was completely barred. But then also protections for religious organizations, that there were protections there for them. And I, I'm not versed on all the details, but uh, that's the, the highlight there. And they were, you know, both sides in Utah were able to say, yes, this is great. We, this is good. And that I think – That's interesting. Is, yeah. That, yeah it, might, so, it might not be the case that if – yeah, so the way you hear about it is like – and this is this is basically the way you hear about any rights question or minority protections question from the left is sort of 
you know, you definitely hear the voices that are ideologically pure, that are pushing for just sort of maximal rights, maximal permission and, and security granted to the minority, just kind of pedal to the metal, which of course that's not everybody, but that's, that's often what you hear. Whereas you might actually get, you know, a thousand LGBTQ people in a room and said, could you guys live with, you know, like some cake bakers are allowed to say no and wedding caterers, but the state guarantees no discrimination for all of these sort of state and federal, you know, items or whatever. And it, I'm not going to speak for them because I, I'm not in that world and I don't know, but I wouldn't be shocked to have that group go 90% or so go. Yeah, that's, that's cool with us. Like we, we, it's not that we really need the cake. It's more that we are worried about these more fundamental things. And so we fight on the cake because we don't want to seed ground, which totally makes sense. So, yeah, I mean, I guess I'll have to look in, into that and, and I yeah. would invite listeners to look into that. I think the Utah Compromise, and look it up and I encourage your listeners to, to look at that as well. And it's something that hasn't been talked about a lot. But um, again, I mean, you had had the blessing of both the LDS church and uh, people concerned about gay rights. So let's let's talk about compromise and the political process. Uh, you work at a think tank. So I can ask you questions like this. I'd like you to talk a little bit about how the founding fathers envisioned political conflicts being settled in the American governmental system. And maybe if that's changed at all since the beginning or just kind of your, your thoughts on all of that and on compromise in general. The founders, they came up with a basically what was our, a national motto, e pluribus unum, out of many, one. That, I think implicit in that is a theory of conflict. Of course, you know, the, the, I mean, the, constitu- the U.S. Constitution was formed precisely to uh, manage the, con- the, 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 the tremendous conflict that had been generated and was uh, under the Articles of Confederation. What we first came up with in this country wasn't working. There was just, you know, the, the states had too much power and there was just too much polarization and conflict among the states. And we needed, you know, stronger federal government. But so out of many, one, e pluribus unum, the idea that, you know, from these 13 states or, uh, you know, from, from these states from, that are different, different, but were united towards the same and uh, I, I think that, you know, at Better Angels, we say there's kind of three ways that we can think about conflict. One is we can become slaves of conflict in which we either ignore conflict or we, you know, put ourselves in the service of conflict. You think about, for instance, some of the some of the cable news shows, you know, in which like drumming up controversy, basically. Yeah. If I, if I create this polarizing encounter with someone from the other side, uh, that's going to create a great one minute clip on Twitter. And it's going to, you know, it's going to really please my tribe and really get the other tribe worked up. Yeah. And my I mean, go up, I think basically go up and the entire Tucker Carlson show comes to mind for that. Yeah, exactly. I, 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 he's I, on my Twitter feed, you know, almost every day I see 
you know, he's there and this someone from, you know, this immigration rights activist, for instance, is there. And you know what's going to happen. And so that is, you know, one – the first model was one in which we are slaves of conflict. Conflict is, is – has mastered us. Okay. Second idea is that we try to manage conflict. We try to clarify and manage conflict. And this is good. You know, we try to seek compromise, like you get some and I get some, and we try to clarify what it is that we actually believe and where we agree and where we disagree, you know, just clarifying what the disagreements are. That can be helpful. And I think that Part of what the founders were trying to do with the U.S. Constitution is the second thing is trying to just like, you know, manage conflict. Like, yes, conflict is going to happen, but, you know, we'll have all these checks and balances and uh, it's, it's, it's a facet of life, but we have to deal with it and we try to deal with it as constructively as we can. But the third and, you know, we would say best uh, in the kind of way to approach conflict, it's not always possible, but desirable, is one in which we try to transform conflict in which conflict becomes, as Pope Francis says, an occasion for solidarity and a chain in the link of a new process. And so we try to take what is valid and useful from both sides, and together, it's as if we go you know, on a higher plane and, and do something, start something new with this synthesis that is generated from the conflict. And I think that's what you look at, you know, our name, Better Angels, comes from Abraham Lincoln's 1861, um, first inaugural address in 1861, March 4th, 1861, on the eve of the Civil War. The Civil War would begin about a month later. And Abraham Lincoln, he says, you know, in, in the final paragraph of that inaugural address, he says, we are not enemies, but friends, we must not be enemies. And he said that let us hope that, that we will again be touched by the better angels of our nature. And so he's appealing, you know, of course, at a time of this, I mean, the Civil War is about to happen. But President Lincoln is trying to appeal to something common on both sides, on the North and the South, the better angels of our nature. And trying to say, let's use this as an occasion to become a better and stronger country. And obviously, he wasn't able to stop the Civil War from happening, and it was a horrible episode of our history. But I think President Lincoln stood for a very American ideal, and that ideal is one in which we are an imperfect country. But we are constantly seeking to be that country, e pluribus unum, out of many, one. And I think that is continues to be the challenge for us today in 2017. Can we, our country, you know, Trump voters, Clinton voters, Red America, Blue America, can we still be e pluribus unum? Can we still and for our generation, can we transform this present conflict and use it as an occasion to appeal to the best that is within us and, and generate a new process in our American story that includes all of us, right? All of us going forward together, immigrant, African-American, white, working class, affluent, you know, everyone. 
But there is a tradition here, a very American tradition, a, a, a tradition of pluralism that we have to work with. Man, that's uh, that sounds like a pretty good place to end. We put some like inspirational synth pad underneath the last couple minutes there. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, I mean, you know, it's hard to envision what that. I, I like that Pope Francis quote of like, you know, a chain in the link of something new. Yes. And it's it's hard sometimes to envision what that could possibly look like, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try and try and exactly. figure out what that might look like, right? And 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 start a dialogue amongst those who disagree to see if something could come from it. I I thank you for the work that you guys are doing. It's just honestly uh I'm so grateful that you guys are doing this work. It gives me a little bit more food for the journey to just know that people are doing this and taking it seriously and sort of putting themselves in uncomfortable positions to advance some human kindness, you know, between political enemies. Yes. As Lincoln said, we are not enemies, but friends, we must not be enemies. And then if we do become enemies, Jesus said to love your enemies. So you can always... Exactly. You can always... uh, you can always have that as a backup plan if you... You can always change the logic. Yeah. If you fail to not be enemies, you just then you, you love those enemies. Well, exactly. man, thank you so much for your time and best of luck in your continued work. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great pleasure. So any longtime listeners of this show will know how pumped I am about the work that Better Angels is doing. Go to their website, betterangels.org and see what they're doing, read their statement, get involved if you want to. They're doing a bus tour this summer, and so they're still planning out where they're going and where they're going to host events. If you're interested in taking part in one or even hosting one, get in touch with them. I think it's mostly like Midwest, maybe East Coast. They're not hitting the West Coast yet. Uh, I'm hoping for a day when they will. In the meantime, I may end up hosting an event in collaboration with them in the Northwest, If I do, obviously, I'll share details about that here. But check out betterangels.org. Another reminder, Reconstruct, my theology podcast with John Raines, is live. Three episodes are up now. You can search for Reconstruct or go to reconstructpodcast.com. You can find me on Twitter, Dan, K-O-C-H. Email me at depolarizedpodcast at gmail.com. And especially let me know on email, Twitter, or Facebook, or somewhere if you like this new format of the two episodes. We're going to be doing it all month and I'd really love some feedback. Big shout out to our patrons for making this show possible. Thank you. Our show is co-produced by Chad Snavely and myself. The track underneath most of the episode today was called Steady Waltz by my project Wizards, which is one of many projects I have that are available for licensing for your podcast or your ad or promo video, dancoke.net is where you can hire me for my day job of music composition. See you guys next week. Thanks again.